Will you please turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2, 1 Peter chapter 2, and we want everyone to be able to follow along, so these brothers have some Bibles. They're going to make their way toward the back. If you need a Bible, just get their attention, and they'll get one of those to you. It's marked at 1 Peter chapter 2. As we continue our series in the book of 1 Peter, the title of which is on the screen, Living Right in a World Gone Wrong. The prophet Isaiah, 700 years before the time of Jesus, so about 2,700 years ago, said of God's people in the first part of your Bible, the Old Testament, these people, they honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. And Jesus, when he walked the earth 2,000 years ago, he quoted these words from Isaiah and he applied them to the religious people of his day. The reason Isaiah said that, the reason Jesus quoted Isaiah saying that, is because it is so very easy for us to engage in worship in a rote and mechanical way without having our hearts in it and stirred by it. And so to avoid that, evangelical churches like ours have tended to avoid recitation of creeds or reciting the Lord's Prayer every week in order to avoid vain repetition that Jesus spoke of and just going through the motions. Now, the truth is there's nothing wrong with reciting a good creed. The word creed is simply a word for belief, a statement of faith, what one believes, the Apostles' Creed. Though not written by the Apostles, it was a very early and very good statement of Christian belief. I believe in God the Father, Almighty Creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day He rose again. He ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father and will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Small C Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. There's nothing wrong with quoting a solid creed like that. There's nothing wrong with reciting the Lord's Prayer, or better, the disciples' prayer. Jesus gave it to them for how they should pray. But Jesus actually said in Luke's account of the giving of that prayer, pray this. And so it is a model prayer, but he also said, pray this. It's okay to pray that. But there is good reason to avoid rote recitation of prescribed elements because we all know how very easy it is to simply say the words and not think about what they mean. But if I were to ask you, why did Jesus die on the cross? Perhaps everyone in here would say, well, he died for our sins, and of course, that's the right answer. But just like, friends, we can recite an ancient creed or the disciples' prayer and not think about what it means, we can do that with our simple but accurate statements about the cross as well. What does the Bible mean when it says, Christ died for our sins? And what does that fact, that Jesus died for our sins, mean to you and me in the here and now? And the answer to that may surprise you. 
Yes, it means, as most of you probably know, that I've had His payment for my sins applied to me personally. If that's the case, then I'm going to heaven. But it also has profound meaning for now. Have you ever noticed how the Bible will speak about who Jesus is and what Jesus did and then move almost seamlessly to topics like how we're to handle trials or how we're to interact in our relationships, how we're to treat members of our families? The reason that the Bible writers can do that move from profound statements like Jesus died for our sins into then very practical elements like those I mentioned is that Jesus died for our sins is not just the correct answer to a Sunday school question. And it does not merely mean that my future home is in heaven and that's secure as important as that is. For Peter and the other apostles, the cross of Jesus is central to our lives right now. First, notice what Peter says about the cross in chapter 2. Beginning in verse 21. To this you were called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Now notice that the Apostle Peter embeds this explanation of the cross of Christ right in the middle of a discussion about daily life issues. Chapter 2, going back to verse 13, it begins a a section that goes all the way to chapter 3 and verse 7 on how we're to conduct ourselves in different contexts. Two weeks ago, we saw from chapter 2, verse 13 through verse 17, how we're to behave as citizens. And last week, verse 18 to verse 20, how we're to act as employees with special attention being given to how we're to submit ourselves to difficult employers. And we're going to see in two weeks, I'm not going to be here next week, we'll be taking Laney down to Florida for college. Please pray for us as we do that. But in two weeks, in chapter 3 and verse 1, we'll begin looking at seven verses that deal with matters regarding husbands and wives. But right in the middle of this instruction on citizenship and work and family is this reminder of the life and death of Jesus. Now, why is that? It's because, friends, the biggest problem we have in every circumstance is not the particular situation that we are in. It's the heart that we bring to the situation. And only when sin is dealt with can life be dealt with in the way that God desires. And sin is dealt with on the cross of Jesus. Now, we need to ask God to help us that as we look at what the Apostle Peter says about what Jesus did for us on the cross. Let's bow together. Father, we come to you again, needy, acknowledging our inability 
to fully understand and our definite inability to apply in our lives because of indwelling sin, what we learn from your word. Oh, Lord, we need your aid. We need your aid to turn the light on on our minds, illuminate our minds so that we do understand. And, Lord, to move in our hearts, we ask your Holy Spirit to cause us to desire what you desire and to be changed as a result of this reflection into the mirror that is your word. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Now, as each week, we've inserted a, an outline in your program. I invite you to take a look at that, where we have two main points from this section of the letter of 1 Peter, the first of which is this, that Christian suffering shows the Savior. Christian suffering shows the Savior. Now, why do I say that? Verses 21 through 23 that we just, that we just read deal with the suffering of Christ as our example, and that suffering is something to which, Peter says in verse 21, we have been called. But I say this, Christian suffering shows the Savior. Well, here's why. Because what began in chapter 2 and verse 13 with how we should behave as citizens, and then in verse 17 as employers, and then beginning in chapter 3 in our homes, in all of that instruction, it is all an explanation of what Peter had said back in chapter 2 and verse 12. Take a look at verse 12. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good works and glorify our Father on the day He visits us. And now, how do I do those good works? How is it that the pagans are going to see something different in me such that they will be compelled to ask the question, what's different about you? Be given the gospel and be changed thereby. And then Peter says, here's how. You'll be citizens in this way, though vulnerable to a hostile emperor, an insane emperor like Nero, as we saw two weeks ago. Though you may be in employment situations where you are vulnerable to a scoliosis boss, as we saw last week, a a crooked boss, and though they despise you because of whose you are, when you stand in a Christian way in those circumstances, you will show a different, a profoundly different value system. And so this is part of living the cross living in a way that shows our allegiances and our values have been radically altered by the change that has come through Jesus. So Christian suffering shows the Savior. And when we suffer as Christ suffered, in the way He suffered, which we will see in a moment, I say in your outline, we show that He is our example. Verse 21, Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example. Now, the word that's translated example was used of children who would trace over their hands to learn to write letters correctly. And so it's in our lives we are tracing through the example of Jesus in the varied circumstances that God in His sovereign providence allows us to endure. And we follow the example of Jesus. We act in a particular way in the circumstances in which God places us because Jesus acted this way. 
Now, why is it important for us to mimic Jesus, to follow him as our example? Verse 12 says, this is evangelistic, that we are to live such good lives among the pagans that they see this difference in us. So what they are to see in us is Christ in his words, in his deeds, and in his thoughts. Now, you remember that I have said numerous times over the years that to glorify God in Scripture means this, to display the character of God. And so in one of those rote Sunday school answers to a question, what's our purpose in life? Many of us would say to bring glory to God. What does that mean? It means to display the character of God. And what does the character of God look like? It looks like the one who came 2,000 years ago, God the Son, who is full of grace and truth. And so if I'm going to show to an unbelieving pagan world what God is like, it means I must follow the example of Jesus. In the circumstances in which he placed me, I must think and talk and act like God. And for this we were created in God's image, so we alone among God's creation have the ability to do this, but now I have to do so with the backdrop of sin. And so I'm doing so, mimicking God, reflecting God's image, looking like Jesus, but I'm doing so in sometimes hostile and difficult and vulnerable circumstances. And I must always ask myself, how would God act in this situation? The God who came and who the Bible says has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet he did not sin. So how am I to follow the example of Jesus, trace out the example of Jesus? It is right and good to ask what would Jesus So when we suffer, we show the Savior. We show that it is He who is our example. And when then we show those different values, as Peter is going to say in chapter 3 and verse 15, and someone asks you about the hope, that is a reason for the hope that is within you, we say, it is the Lord Jesus Christ who is my example. We show Him as our example. But I say secondly in your outline, we show that he is our judge. Verse 22, he committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. Now, why do I say we show that he is our judge? Here's why. Though Peter is going to go on in verse 23 and talk about the various things that the Lord Jesus faced and how and what he did, more importantly, what he did not do in response to those things. He says in verse 22 that he committed no sin did not retaliate with his mouth in deceit or in lies. But that is a quotation. Notice verse 22 is in quotation marks. And that's a quotation from the first part of your Bible, and specifically Isaiah chapter 53. And it's a quotation from Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 9 that says, though he committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth, it then goes on to say, in verse 10 of Isaiah chapter 53, that it was the Lord's will to crush him and to cause him to suffer. You see, this is a reference to the fact that Jesus Christ is the promised Messiah spoken of by the prophets, including profoundly Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 53. 
And God judged our sin in Jesus when he died on the cross. And God the Father judged our sin in Jesus because it pleased him. It was his will to crush him and cause him to suffer. So what's the cross all about? (laughs) The cross is about the holy, righteous wrath of God being poured out on the one who committed no sin on behalf of we who have committed sin as high treason against God. God was angry. And God is, the Bible teaches, angry at sinners every day. Now, those gathered in this room, I don't know everybody, but maybe you've been taught the pop psychology version of Christianity that says, God is never angry with you? (laughs) Friends, if you believe that God is never angry, look at the cross. The Bible tells us he poured out his wrath, but he poured out his wrath in judgment, thanks be to God, on God the Son who came to take the judgment that you deserve and that I deserve. And in verses 24 and 25, Peter is going to explain that as we will see in just a bit. When then we follow the example of Jesus, our Christian suffering shows the Savior. He's our example. And that He is the one who has judged our sin on the cross. And now, as a result of that, we can live in a way that does not give regard to what happens to us now because Jesus has paid everything that matters. We show that he's our example. We show that he is our judge. And I want you to note carefully, thirdly, when we suffer as Christians and show the Savior, we show that not only is he our judge, if we've come to him and our sin has been judged in Jesus, but we show that he is their judge as well. Who's judge? Those who would hate you. The emperor who would mistreat you. The crooked employer who would take advantage of you. As we will see in two weeks when we come to chapter 3, perhaps the husband, dear wife, who would seek to dominate you. And in all of that, when we suffer as Christians, we show that he is their judge as well. Now, how so? Verse 23. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. What we are saying when we endure suffering as Jesus did is that the judge will take care of all of this. And verse 23 is saying that that's precisely how Jesus endured the circumstances that he faced when he walked the earth 2,000 years ago. And verse 23 is telling us then that we need not, as I say in your outline, react now. When they hurled their insults, he did not retaliate. Now, my 
<laughs> inclination, sinful inclination. You got an insult for me, I can top that. And now it's a battle of wits, and I'm going to win this battle of wits. That's my sinful inclination. As a matter of fact, it is, and I'm, and I'm saying this, it is one of my besetting sins. You say something to me, you're going to get it back and more. But it's not what Jesus did. And the truth is, I need not react now if I remember that God is their judge as well. Jesus entrusted himself to him who judges justly, the end of verse 23 says, and therefore he did not need to react now. It's a practical matter, not reacting to the one who is coming at you drives the offender crazy. Do you all know that? The person who would come at you with their, with their words, in this case, insults, it drives them crazy when they do not have power to control you. When we react in kind, we are saying, your words mean so much to me that I have to react, and I may have to react sinfully because they mean so much to me. But when you can in Christ-like fashion, in the control of the Holy Spirit, not retaliate, it drives the offender crazy. It heaps coals on their head, says Romans chapter 12. Remember the Bible says this? It is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. And then right after that verse, which is a quote from Deuteronomy chapter 32 in the first part of your Bible, it then quotes the book of Proverbs, Proverbs 25. And it says this, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Now, what does that mean? It means if the offender has any conscience left at all, whether the insane emperor, whether the crooked employer, whether the selfish husband, whoever it may be, that's in a position of authority and is mistreating the one who is, is vulnerable, if they have any conscience left of all, at all, their conscience will be pricked because of the example that you have given of non-retaliation and that you serve a power greater than the words that they're insulting you with. And so we need not react now because we know that God is their judge. And we need not, secondly, react in the future. Notice again verse 23, when they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Now, what is a threat? But a promise of negative consequences in the future. I am threatening you with con consequences. I may not be able to carry them out right now. But make no mistake, they will be carried out in the future, and so I threaten you. Sometimes people say, that's not a threat, it's a, right, it's a promise. Well, the truth is, every threat, if said by truthful people, is a promise that this is going to happen to you if you engage in particular behavior. So if I'm inclined to take matters into my own hands, I may not be able to act immediately, and so I promise to get you back. But we need not react. In Jesus' example, both now or in the future, or I say thirdly in your outline, 
we need not react ever. Again, verse 23, instead he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay. The question for you and me in those situations where we are confronted, where we may be mistreated, especially when mistreated because of a stand for Christ, the question for you and me is, do we trust God in this situation? Or must I take matters into my own hands and even sinfully react? Unfortunately, for me, for many of us, the answer is yes, I must take matters into my own hands. Hear this. Whatever causes you to lose control controls you. And you, many of us have got somebody you're thinking of right now who, quote, pushes my buttons. (laughs) You've heard me say, you know, that button has got a wire that's attached right to your heart. And the reason that person or that situation can push your buttons is because we are cultivating a heart that says, I do not trust God. I have to take this matter into my own hands. And therefore, instead of being controlled by God, the Holy Spirit, we're controlled by an external circumstance, including another individual. Jesus was never out of control. Did you all know that? Never out of control. Always under the control of the will of his Father. Always under the control of the fruit of the Spirit. You say, well, I can think of the, you know, one time when he went into the temple and he was overturning the tables. He was just a madman. He was just out of control. Jesus was not out of control. And Jesus, when he was angry, Jesus was engaging in righteous anger. Because the reputation of God was offended. Now hear this. There's a big difference between the reputation of God being offended and the reputation of Ken being offended. I sometimes think those are the same thing and that's why I react the way I do. And I need to remember that they are not. Jesus was never out of control. And we show that we trust God in response to unjust suffering when we're in a vulnerable position, when we do as Jesus did, and we entrust ourselves to Him who judges justly. We show that we are vitally linked to the living Savior when we do that. And I say in your outline... That Christian suffering shows the, and I chose my word carefully, Savior. Because the quotations in this passage, there are four of them that go back to Isaiah chapter 53. They are all about the one who would come, the the Messiah, the Christ, who would save his people from their sins. So what what does it mean when we say Savior? It means to save, more specifically, to be delivered from, to be rescued from. To be delivered from, rescued from, what? Well, a number of things. One, the wrath of a holy God. He took that judgment upon himself. But also to be saved from and rescued from ourselves and the desires of our own idolatrous hearts. And Jesus saves us from that so that we need not ever react 
in a way that is sinful or takes matters into our own hands. And so as Peter has laid out here, there is a sense in which our suffering is like that of Jesus, and Jesus then is our example, and we are to follow that. But of course, our suffering is not like Jesus' suffering in all respects. It could not be, as indicated by verses 24 and 25. We're going to see those in just a moment, but his suffering resulted in him dying for the sins of many. We can't die for the sins of any. There are all kinds of illustrations that could be pointed to in Scripture of someone who righteously mimicked God and entrusted himself to God in the face of suffering. I'll just give you one. You all remember that wicked King Saul, in the first part of your Bible, sought the life of David. And after David had Saul captured and had him in a vulnerable position, here's what the Bible says that Saul said to David. You are more righteous than I, for you have dealt with me while I for you have dealt well with me while I have dealt wickedly with you. Now notice Saul's pagan thinking assumes that David will retaliate. David has the opportunity, he has them has him vulnerable, but he does not retaliate in kind. So why do we have such a hard time with this? Why is it that some of you cannot do it at all? Completely controlled by your passions, by your desires, when in certain situations and with certain people, you must retaliate and take matters into your own hands. Why is that? And that brings us to the second point in your outline. Christian suffering shows the Savior. Christ's suffering shows that He is the Savior. You see, when Christians suffer, we point to Christ. We live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they see your good works and glorify our Father on the day He visits us. Christian suffering shows the Savior, but Christ's suffering now in verses 24 and 25 shows that He is the one who is the Savior And it is only through what the Savior has done to rescue us and deliver us that we have the basis and the power to act as Jesus did. Now, what has Jesus done? What did Jesus do on the cross? Why did he die on the cross? He died for, remember the Sunday school answer. And it's a right answer. Christ died for our sins. The Scriptures say very directly, But Peter is now going to explain this with a number of quotations, again from Isaiah chapter 53, verse 24. He himself bore our sins. That's a quotation, an allusion actually to three separate verses in Isaiah chapter 53. He himself bore our sins. And then it says he did so on the cross. And the word that's translated cross here in the first incarnation of the New International Version, it said he bore our sins on the tree. The word is elsewhere translated tree. And one of the important places that it's translated tree in your New Testament is in Galatians chapter 3, quoting again the first part of the Bible. Deuteronomy chapter 21, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. So now when Peter quotes Isaiah 53 and says, he bore our sins on the tree, 
It's referring to the fact now that Jesus took the curse that belonged to you and me upon Himself on the cross, though He Himself had not sinned. Christ took the penalty of all guilty lawbreakers on Himself. And so the curse of the law was transferred from sinners like you and me to Christ, the sinless one. And He, thanks be to God, delivered us, rescued us from its curse. That phrase is in quotation marks. In Galatians chapter 3, because it is a quotation from Deuteronomy chapter 21. And in the Old Testament, the first part of your Bible, criminals were executed normally by stoning and then displayed on a stake or a post to show that God's divine rejection. Now think about that. Christ hung on a post, on a tree, on a cross for you and me taking the curse that belonged to you and me, showing God the Father's rejection of God the Son as He bore the sin of the world. The worst part of the cross was not the lashing that Jesus took beforehand. It was not the nails, it was not the wood. It was the rejection of God the Son by God the Father. And that is why Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He bore our sins. He took our curse. Christ's death paid the penalty that was ours. And hear this, dear friend. If we fail to receive the payment Jesus made, we will pay for our sin ourselves forever in a place called hell. Before we end today, you will have opportunity to have what Jesus did for you on the cross applied to you personally. He bore our sins. And this is why the Bible says God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. And this death that Jesus died on our behalf, as God looked upon God the Son and the curse that He became for us, bearing the sin of the world, and the Father turned His face away and Jesus cried out, Father, why have you forsaken me? But then Jesus completed the work. And he said, it is finished. He died and was buried. He rose the third day according to the Scriptures. The Bible tells us that it was God the Father who raised him from the dead, signifying that his death had been accepted by God the Father. Thanks be to God. Because Jesus was obedient where everyone prior to him had disobeyed. And because he perfectly obeyed in every thought and word and deed, and even became obedient to a cross death, Philippians chapter 2 says, for this reason, God has exalted him to the highest place. Given him a name that's above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess.
that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. His death was acceptable to the Father because of his righteous life. And so the Bible teaches that there are three exchanges from one person to another. And let me just remind you of what those are. The Bible teaches that the sin of Adam is counted to you and me. Adam represented us when Adam committed the very first sin, original sin. And the Bible teaches the first exchange is that Adam's sin is counted to you and me. But thankfully, the Bible teaches two other exchanges. The second is that our sin is counted to Christ, placed on Christ. The Lord laid on him, Isaiah 53, the iniquity of us all. And not only is Jesus' death counted to our benefit, paying the penalty for our sin, but the third exchange is this. Jesus' absolutely perfect righteous life is counted to us when we come to him. Thanks be to God. So that now when God looks at Ken Brown, sinful though I am, struggling though I do, retaliating sinfully though I'm prone toward, God looks at me through the righteousness of Jesus. And those other two, Christ's death counted to me, Christ's righteous life counted to me, are what is known in church history as the great exchange. And so we can live now and die for Christ because Christ lived and died for us. And we can do that as citizens and as employees and as husbands and wives. Now notice what verse 24 says then. He, bore, he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Just very quickly, that phrase, by his wounds you have been healed, another quote, Isaiah 53. I grew up Pentecostal. Many of you know that. The Pentecostal church that I grew up in would quote that and would apply that to physical healing in the atonement. And the idea was that because Jesus died by his wounds, we have been physically healed, and therefore you can name and claim your healing. And so you see that teaching all over the place. I just want to say very quickly, a cursory reading of Isaiah chapter 53, and now as Peter uses Isaiah 53 in chapter 2, that phrase is used to refer to the healing of our sins spiritually, our iniquities, our transgressions, our sins before God. Now, it is true that one of the consequences of sin is sickness and death. And when there is a new heaven and a new earth, all of that will be done away. But in the meantime, the healing that Jesus provides and secured for us is the spiritual healing from sin that separates us from God. And verse 25 says this, For you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Sheep going astray. That remind anyone of any passage in the Bible? Isaiah 53. 
All we like sheep have gone astray. Each one has turned to his own way. But now you have returned to the shepherd. That is the one who protects and guides. And the overseer, the one who watches over your souls. Now you have returned to him rather than going your own way. Now in our final moments together, there are some of you who are sitting here who are praising God for the Lord Jesus as our Messiah and our Savior. Because what He has done resonates in your heart as it does mine. I know my deep need of the cross of Jesus every moment of every day. But then there are others of you who are sitting here undoubtedly, and you're going, why do I need that? Let me just give you one illustration in our final moments. You know, it is possible, right, that there are people sitting here right now who are suffering from an internal disease that they know nothing about. Physical disease. Heart disease. Cancer. How will you know if you have that disease? Someone who has greater insight than you is going to have to tell you, right? You're going to have to be evaluated by someone who knows better than you and can diagnose your condition for you, right? And if that someone, your doctor, tells you we've run the tests and the results are positive, you have cancer, are you going to say, no, I don't? I mean, I don't feel like I have cancer. You have heart disease. No, I don't. I don't feel like I have heart disease. And do you see, friends, the physician that has diagnosed our souls is God himself. And God himself has said we have spiritual disease. And we need the healing that only he can provide. And it is only, and I say this lovingly, but it is only the most pompous and arrogant among us who will say to God, no, I don't. You look at God the Son having come and died on the cross for your sin and my sin. And then you want to tell God, I don't need that? What does the cross do? It gives us a relationship with God. And because of that relationship with God now, I can live in the here and now as a citizen, as an employee, as a husband, as a wife, in a way that's pleasing to God. My citizen is in, citizenship is in heaven, so I don't need to fret about who's in charge. My boss is a carpenter from Nazareth, so I don't need to be overly concerned about the underling he allowed to rule over me at work. My ultimate husband, if you're a wife, is Christ. So if my earthly husband is a jerk, I can still obey the Lord. Christ is God. And yet Jesus demonstrated his love, husbands, by giving up his rights for the benefit of those who were vulnerable and needed it. The cross motivates all of that. And that's why I say, in your take-home truth, we can live and die for Christ because he lived and died for us. Now we're going to pray in just a moment. And when we do, I encourage all who have come to God through Jesus to thank him for who he is and what he has done on the cross. And for those of you that came into this room not understanding what it means when we say Christ died for our sins, I trust you understand now. 
And do you understand the three great ex- the three exchanges given in Scripture and the great exchange of our sin to Christ and His righteousness to us? We offer you opportunity to receive that now. How do you do that? Acknowledge the fact that you need it, that His diagnosis of you is correct, that you are a sinner. Recognize that Christ died on the cross for your sins, that death was acceptable to God the Father because of His absolutely righteous life. Repent of your sins. I'm going to follow you with my life, no longer a sheep going my own way. Receive Jesus Christ into your life. We're going to bow, and you can pray a prayer similar to this. It's not a formula. But from your heart to God, acknowledge who you are, who Jesus is, what He did for you. Ask Him to forgive you and submit your life to Him. Let's bow together. Our Father, we thank You that what we see in Your Word is not just trivia to give us the correct answers to questions that we hear once a week or every so often in a church context. But the truths given to us in your word, they are life. They are eternal life and they are life right now. Lord, help us to understand the centrality of the Savior, the centrality of the gospel to everything we do every moment of every day. Apart from you, we can do nothing. Apart from you, we have nothing. Apart from you, we have no hope. We thank you. That in the Lord Jesus Christ, we not only have a confident expectation of eternal life with you in the future, but we have instruction and motivation and power in the here and now to live in a way that pleases you. Lord, we thank you that all of that is because of what he did for us, his righteous life, his death on the cross. I pray that you are drawing some to yourself right now. Oh, Holy Spirit, we ask you, humbly ask you, to move upon the hearts of some in this room now, to call them out of the world and to yourself. May they be calling out to you to have mercy upon me, a sinner. And Lord, we ask you to begin your change in them from the inside out, that their lives and their lips go from pursuing their own agenda to living for the God who made them and the Savior who died for them. We pray all of this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.